So we're going to be in, we're closing out 2 Peter this morning, which is kind of exciting. We started 1 Peter, I don't know how long ago, a while back, before we were meeting in person. And then we went on to 2 Peter, and we are finishing that out this morning. And this section I've split into three parts because really it should be one long sermon, but we can't do really long sermons anymore uh, because nobody will sit still for it, especially the little kids. And so I split it into three, um, and Peter is addressing heresies in the church. And a heresy is just, it's a, it's a scary word that gets wrongly defined all the time. A heresy is not just any bad doctrine, okay? It's specifically a teaching that compromises the gospel that comes from inside in the church. It's not just people outside the church who don't like Christians or are arguing against the existence of God and that kind of thing. That's wrong too, but that's a different category, all right? Specifically what Peter is so upset about here is people inside the church who should know better, who are living a sinful lifestyle, a sensuous lifestyle, he calls it, and they are using, they have built doctrines to, to promote that lifestyle, and they are leading other people astray, okay? And I gave you some examples last week of modern-day heresies, and I wanted to give you one more this morning. We could talk about tons of these, okay? I'm picking the really old ones, the ones that go back to the New Testament, because, in my opinion, there's really nothing new. And what you find is when you just look at these really old false teachings, you find that there's really all we've done in 2020 is mix and match them together in new and creative ways. And they make new sort of, you know, what I call the heretical love children of multiple heresies being combined. And we think we're coming up with this great new thing that no one's ever thought of. And I hate to break it to you. There are just no, there's nothing new under the sun. Okay. And so that's part of why I wanted to do some of these really old ones, because what you find is they're actually not that old. They're still around. So I want to give you one more, and then we'll close out the book with Peter defending the idea that Jesus is coming again, okay, because this idea has come under attack, all right? And so the, the, the final heresy I want to put before you this morning is these, uh, what, were, what were called Judaizers. The book of Galatians was written by Paul in defense against these, what he called, Judaizers, um, which in kind of modern parlance, I would say is like God, the gospel um, of faith plus works. Okay, the idea that you have to add something to God's grace, add something called works, which is doing good things, to what saves you, okay? It's not just the act of Jesus and having faith in Jesus, it's that plus something, okay? In Acts 15, we're not going to read that right now, um, that, is, that was settled, the church settled this issue in Acts 15, and then you see Paul writing about it in the book of Galatians. Um, basically what they were saying was that in order to be a true Christian, you had to follow specifically two Hebrew laws. One was circumcision, the other was their dietary laws. Circumcision was the big one, Okay. And they were saying, you know, if you, you Gentiles who have begun to follow Jesus and come into the church, you're, you're not quite there yet. What you have to do in addition to that is you have to get circumcised and you have to follow the Jewish dietary laws. And Paul argued against that and they finally decided 
against it in Acts chapter 15. But I don't think a lot of people today are running around going, Christians should be circumcised, okay? I don't think that's a popular teaching. However, there's a more subtle form of that, okay? So when you read Galatians, it, doesn't, it has everything to do with us, okay? Just even though circumcision is not controversial. Let me give you some modern examples. There's the Catholic Church in the 16th century that decided that some sacraments are required for salvation. It's faith plus some sacraments. Wholesale condemnation of all charismatic churches as false churches. If you believe in speaking in tongues, for example, you can't call yourself a Christian. That's a demonic thing, and you're demon-possessed. You're not a Christian. That's heretical. A lot of people who teach that are also really big into talking about how terrible heresy is, <laughs> right? Or how about the opposite? Wholesale condemnation of all denominational churches as dead churches. <gasps> Teaching that speaking in tongues is required evidence of salvation. If you do not speak in tongues, you might not be saved. You see, you've added something to the gospel. Now, there are those that would, that would say, well, it's not required, but every Christian, Christian can speak in tongues or has the potential for speaking in tongues. That's, that's, that's better because they've backed away from the heresy line a little bit, right? I mean, I still disagree, but at least they've backed off the line, okay? But that teaching that all Christians must speak in tongues, and if you don't, that's good reason to doubt your salvation. That is a damaging, damaging teaching. You've added something to the gospel. Generally requiring agreement on secondary doctrines before one can be called a Christian. This is essentially what I think the Judaizers were doing. They were zealous. They were zealous for, they loved their culture. They loved the history. They loved the fact that Christianity had its roots in their belief and in their culture and in their and in the, the worship of God under, on, in the temple and all of those things, that was mixed in beautifully with their faith. And they were like zealous for that. But their zeal for that overran the gospel and they crossed the line. This is typically what you find in every false teaching. Is someone is zealous for something that's good and they take it and they go so far there's no boundaries in their thinking. Another great example that gets made fun of a lot but is still a thing in North Carolina and in the South, snake handlers, poison sippers, typically associate not being bitten or dying from a snake bite as proof of salvation. And they teach that the reverse is true. If you get bit by the snake and you die, then you must not have been saved or didn't have enough faith. How about this more subtle form that's real popular today? I'm starting to see this online a lot. If you don't vote Republican, you can't call yourself a Christian. Now, it's one thing to say my opinion is that the, most, that the vote that is closest to Christian values is blank. You've backed away from the heresy line, right? But I'm starting to see people say what I just said, which is you can't call yourself a Christian if you don't vote for this person. And I'm also seeing it on the other side more and more. How can you call yourself a Christian and vote Republican? 
You see the danger that we have to have boundaries in our thinking, right? Where our zeal can't get past the wall you've built around the gospel, which is, I know that we are saved by grace through faith alone, nothing else. Requiring formality of dress in order to enter the church building and or hear the gospel. You have to dress a certain way, act a certain way in order to enter the church. I think that's adding to the gospel. And there's so many more. You can see how this Judaizer thing, if you look at it just on the surface level, well, I don't, I don't care about all that circumcision stuff. What's that got to do with me? Well, what are you adding to the gospel in order for someone to qualify, someone to qualify as a Christian? Think about all the people that you're going to be in heaven with that you disagree with. All those Democrats or all those Republicans. You can, they're going to be your neighbor in heaven. They're going to have the mansion next door. You've got to keep this stuff clear, right? And this is what Paul was arguing for in Galatians was keep it clear. Anyone, if an angel from heaven, he says, comes down and adds anything to the gospel, he should be, you deny him. Do not follow him. He, he should be cast into hell, he says, even an angel himself. Hello, Mormons. I'm just picking on everybody this morning. So there's something in the human soul that makes us want to control our own spiritual destiny as well as the destiny of others. If you just do what I say and do these things, you'll go to heaven. We love to create little exclusive clubs, and those clubs are getting smaller and smaller. Have you noticed that? The clubs we create have gotten down to the, 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 the point of the individual. Well, I am the only one qualified to be in my club. Because I'm the only one that believes the specific set of things that I believe. We love to create these clubs and decide, be in control of who's in and who's out. But Jesus is Lord, not us. The Judaizers and that that thought process that has continued on today is just about making yourself Lord over the club versus Jesus. Only he gets to decide who's in and who's out. It isn't Peter, by the way, standing at the pearly gates. I hate that cartoon. That old picture of Peter standing at the pearly gates with the book saying, you get to come in, you get to go out. It's not Peter. I think Peter would be pretty angry about that cultural meme, right? Who's at the pearly gates? It's Jesus. Not Peter. Peter's inside. Peter's happy to have been allowed in by Jesus. Peter, who denied Jesus three times, he's not standing at the gate. It's Jesus. So every time someone adds anything to the gospel, it becomes a heresy. And we have to have guardrails in our mind that protects us from our own zeal. Zeal for secondary doctrines, zeal for a specific style of church, zeal for a particular stripe of politics, zeal for all these good and good, great things can take over and these guardrails are important for us. All right. 
So let's move on to verses 1 through 13 of chapter 3. Peter is dealing with the final kind of false teaching, which is if you put yourself in the mindset of these Christians at these, this time, Peter's at the end of his life, right? He suspects it won't be that much longer for him. And so the church has been going for a long time. And the promise was, Jesus said, I'm coming again. And then he ascends to heaven. He says, just go bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. But now it's been a while. Now for you and I, it's been even longer, right? But you can imagine, like, people getting, Peter, Peter's getting old, and he's going, okay, well, I thought this was going to happen a lot sooner. And there's this murmuring in the world and in the church of maybe he's not really coming back. Did we get that wrong? Maybe he's not coming. And Peter's going to address this. In fact, we see that the world is actually mocking the church because they believe in this. So let's read this together. 2 Peter 3, 1 through 13, he says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and when the heavens will pass away with a roar, and then the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So Peter prophesies, he says a lot of things here, but first he prophesies that the return of Christ will take longer than people expect. Why? Because Jesus is being patient. Not because he's not coming or not paying attention, but he is waiting. What's he waiting for? That everybody should repent. He doesn't want anyone to perish. So he's waiting on that. It's not because he's up there bored and not paying attention and just sleeping or something. Peter's like, you don't want him to come right now because if he did, you'd burn. So you can imagine these people mocking the church. Oh, you say Jesus is coming. Look, where is he? 
You can see it, right? You can hear it because you get the same stuff today. Peter's answer to that mocking is he's just waiting for you. He's being patient and long-suffering. He rebukes the mockers, pointing out that God created and using the same creation materials, he judged the world with a flood. He reminds it that the prophets and now the apostles have predicted the first and the second coming of Christ. We looked at some of those prophecies a few weeks ago. Just a handful. There's hundreds. And then he says, and the apostles now who knew Jesus are giving you their firsthand accounts of what Jesus taught and what he predicted. The first coming was fulfilled and the second will be as sure as the first. So he says, look at what the prophets predicted. It came true. Why wouldn't you then think that what Jesus predicted would also come true? And he answers that, of that, that accusation that just things are going on as they always have. Time is just moving along. Nothing's going to be changed. Nothing's going to be different. It's just, just like a turning clock day after day after day after day since the beginning of time. It's always just been the same. Why would you think that tomorrow would be any different? And Peter goes, wait a minute. You're just looking at history the wrong way. And he points out Noah. He points out creation. He says, God intervenes. And when God intervenes, it's not always a happy day. Because <coughs> when God intervenes, he rescues the righteous and he judges the unrighteous. Why would you be trying to get him to come now, you who are mocking him? It's crazy. See, Peter has a heavenly, eternal perspective, always. I think this is our guard against being intimidated by mockery. You know, mockery is intimidating. There's a weird kind of confidence when someone, if you've ever been mocked before, especially if we're being a Christian, you just want to cower. You feel humiliated and stupid. Peter stands there and goes, you fools. God's just being patient with you. The fact that you can stand here and use the breath that he gave you to mock him should give you pause. So Jesus is taking his sweet time because he's patient. And he wants to give more people a chance to turn to him. That's verses 8 and 9. Do not mistake his lingering as a sign of his unfaithfulness but rather see it as evidence of his patience with a sinful world. And I think based on this, whenever we find ourselves praying, like, as I have over the past six months, <laughs> Maranatha, Lord Jesus, would you just come? This is getting crazy. It's getting crazy. It's going to get crazier. November's coming. I don't know what people are going to do. It's getting weird. People who used to be normal are getting weird. Come, Lord Jesus, what should come right after that prayer was, but Lord, I don't want anyone to perish. Because I know what it means for you to come, up, come back. It means wonderful things for me because I'm in you. I'm unified with Christ, and it's going to be a wonderful, glorious day. But for those who are not in Christ, it will be a terrible day, the worst day of all days. And so there should be a simultaneous thing in our hearts that runs together right? Maranatha, Lord Jesus, but O oh Lord, that none would perish. 
Peter says that the motivation for this mockery is that they want to fulfill their own desires. They intentionally forget, which is a wonderful idea of forgetting on purpose. If you've had kids, you're familiar with this idea. Why didn't you do what I told you to do? I forgot. And you start to suspect that there's some intentional forgetting going on, right? It's amazing how you don't forget the things that you want to do. You never forget to have fun. You only forget to do the things you already didn't want to do. The human heart is slippery, isn't it? Because it's not that they didn't actually forget. It's there's this weird interaction between their heart and their memory, as we all have. And so the parent is left with the dilemma of how do you discipline forgetfulness? Because forgetfulness is sin. Forgetting what God commanded is sinful. And so Peter points out this idea that they, 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 they intentionally forget. They want to forget God. They want to forget his coming. They want to forget what he told us. They want to forget that he said he's coming again. They would just push that outside of their mind, out of their thoughts, because they don't want to be accountable to him. They want, don't want the idea of Jesus being alive and paying attention because they want to do what they want to do. If Jesus is coming again, then they can live, or if he's not coming again, they can live how they please. Their false teaching is motivated by a self-satisfying lifestyle. They go together. This is at the root of this mockery and this, and this denial of the existence of God. At the root of it is not an intellectualism at the root of atheism and the denial of the existence of God is a desire to do what you want to do and to be your own master. So Peter ends with by directing a piercing question to the churches, including us. He asked them how they're going to live in light of the fact that Jesus is coming. What do you want to be caught doing? When he returns. That's an intense question if you think about it. What do you want to be doing when he appears? What do you want him to find you most concerned about? What do you want him to find you zealous for, angry about, and hoping in? Will he find you wringing your hands in fear of pestilence and economic collapse? You know how stupid that's going to feel when he shows up? You're having a panic attack about the economy, and he's like, what, what you doing? Well, I was posting about this thing on Facebook. Really? What were you going to say? Nothing. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter now, Right? Will he find you obsessed with satisfying your own desires instead of serving his church? Will he find you looking to him in anticipation or looking to the world for comfort? It's a convicting question, isn't it? See, this is why it's important to not intentionally forget that he's coming. Because we all do it. When we remember it, that it is imminent, it is near, and I, goodness, it is nearer than ever. 
then that should shift how you look at the world, what you're obsessed with, what you're zealous for, where you find your comfort, and who you look to. So let's read his conclusion. Verses 14 through 18. And then we'll close. In the heading in my Bible, it says, Final Words. And we should remember the start of 2 Peter, which is this very well may have been Peter's actual final written words, which is a sobering thought. He says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Praise God for Peter. Just pause there for a second. You ever read Romans and scratched your head and wondered what in the world Paul is on about? Peter did the same thing. He's not saying it's impossible to understand, by the way. He says it's hard. So I, I don't know if Peter's jabbing at Paul a little bit or if he's just confessing, I'm, you know, it's hard. So be comforted. One of the apostles struggled with Paul too, all right? It's wonderful that that's even in the Bible. All right. So there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Well, that's a word for the day, isn't it? Losing your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. All right, let's pray. God, I pray that you would fill us with stability. Help us to not get carried away by these false doctrines, either the ones that I've specifically talked about or others that are filtering through our culture that worm their way into the church and into our thinking. God, that you would put guardrails up in our minds. God, that our zeal would not be without bounds. God, keep us stable in this unstable time. God, when the world is obsessed with all the wrong things, fearful about all the wrong things, worried about all the wrong things, finding comfort in all the wrong things, God, that we would be safe from that, that we would look to you and you alone. God, that we would feel the immediacy of your return, that you are right around the corner. God, that you would find us, as Peter says, holy and without blemish, waiting, anticipating your return, even hastening it. And God, we also pray that none would perish. God, that everyone would be brought in, that our family members and the people we're praying for, God, the people in this city would repent, the people in this nation would repent and come to you. God, that they would run into your kingdom. 
in this season of our nation, God. Even as things are unstable, God, that your kingdom would be advanced. And God, would you come soon? God, we cry out to you for that. And God, I pray for this church, Living Hope Church, that every one of us would mature in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That we would grow to be more like him. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. I love you. We'll see you next time.